Hitler is the reason most of us want an iPhone 13. How's that for an opening line? So back in uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, Sigmund Freud began writing a number of his works on how individuals engage with the decision-making process. Uh, one of the books where he wrote the most about this was in 1920. It's called Beyond the Pleasure Principle. And he basically says that we are not nearly as rational as we think we are when it comes to our decision-making processes. He actually says that uh, we are all basically making decisions based upon what he calls unconscious drives, uh, basically emotion. It was often thought that we're rational beings and therefore we're going to make rational decisions about the things that we do or think. And he says, no, 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 there's these unconscious drives. Now, uh, today, we all believe that. That's a pretty common thought process on how human beings make decisions. But at the time, it was pretty revolutionary. And Hitler actually picked up on Freud's writings. It's actually kind of ironic because Sigmund Freud was Jewish. But he took Freud's writings about these unconscious drives and he actually applied them to the Nazi propaganda machine. They actually took those and began to use them to argue or to tell Germany what they ought to think, what was right and wrong, or basically trying to use Germany's unconscious drives to steer the nation towards unconscionable decisions and unconscionable actions. Uh, I like this quote. Uh, I don't know if I'd like it, but I think it's true. Hitler was a master of fanning the two most basic human emotions. I want and I fear. He was a master at taking those and, and manipulating the masses to do what he wanted to be done. Freud had a nephew that grew up during this time. It was a big fan of his uncle's writings. His name was Edward Bernays. Uh, Bernays actually started writing before World War II. A lot of thoughts based on his uncle's writings and wound up writing another book after the war. He actually was an American citizen and uh, worked on behalf of the U.S. Armed Forces to try to counteract fascism, and he saw how Hitler was able to take his uncle's ideas and use them for such destruction, such terrible, terrible things, and he actually decided he wanted to use them for something different. Um, I, I don't, what, how Hitler used them was certainly the absolute worst way they could be used to manipulate uh, but Bernays did some things with them that uh, have affected you and I because he saw how effective uh, that they were. Uh, Bernays actually is known as the father of modern advertising. Uh, he actually wrote a book after World War II uh, to talk about his uncle's ideas and how they ought to be and could be applied to economics. And much of this actually came out uh, in how he then started using them in advertising for uh, different companies as well as um, political uh, folks he was interested in, in, in supporting. Um, listen to what he said in one of his books. He said, the conscious and intelligent manipulation 
of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of, so, of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. He said we are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes are formed, our ideas suggested, largely by men we have never heard of. In almost every act of our daily lives, we are dominated, he said, by the relatively small number of persons who pull the wires which control the public mind. That's pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? He understood that we are not nearly as rational as we would like to believe. That we have certain drives, these unconscious drives, fears, emotions, that often play a huge role in the decisions that we make. And he understood, as Freud suggested, that these things could be manipulated that people could be manipulated. He saw how Hitler had done it, and he realized that he wanted to try to take those same similar ideas that his uncle had first espoused and apply them to, in this case, advertising. Uh, Paul Mazur, or Mazur, I'm not exactly sure how to say his name, he was a Wall Street banker, he was the head of Lehman Brothers, said this about 100 years ago. Listen to, to what he said. He said, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. <laughs> that sound familiar? We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. What you had is you had Wall Street and Fifth Avenue coming together, using some of Freud's ideas to try to manipulate the masses into a consumer culture rather than a needs-based culture to a wants-based culture. And some of you are like, yo, T, I love history and I love economics and I'm totally grooving with you right now. And the rest of you are like, why are we talking about this? What, what, like, I don't, I'm so glad you're curious why we're talking about this. I would love to share with you exactly why I think that this is important. The reason it's important is because you and I have bought into the lie that more stuff equals happiness. Now, if I were to simply ask you, do you believe more stuff equals happiness? What are you going to say? No, T, I don't believe that at all. Like, I know that that's not true. And then I would go to your closet and I would ask your closet what you believed. <laughs> You see, I know that more stuff does not equal happiness. I know that. And yet way too often I fall trap to the bombardment of advertisements and all these other things that make me think that, well, maybe it could. <laughs> uh, this is something I think most of us have wound up falling into that many of us don't even recognize. And so today, what I'm hoping to do is just draw our attention to this thing that we probably would all initially agree with. More stuff does not equal happiness. But hopefully also shine a light on the reality that most of us, though we don't believe that, live our lives as though we actually do, myself included. Um, my uncle posted something uh, just this past week from a book 
by a lady named Sonia Leah Bamersky. I always mess up her name. Leah Bamersky. Uh, it's called The How of Happiness. She said that back in 1940, uh, about a third, actually a little bit more than a third, of homes in the U.S. did not have indoor plumbing, no indoor running water, and no central heat. Okay, folks were using outhouses, still having to go to a well, and still having to make a fire in a fireplace to try to heat up a room. That survey was taken in 1940, and they found that people in America still considered themselves very happy, quote-unquote. In fact, uh, the average ranking was 7.5 on a 10-point scale of their happiness. And in 1940, if you remember, it's right at the very beginning, uh, the, the rest of the world was in a war. America was just about to get into it. They did that same survey just a few years back, and now we all have, pretty much every house in America has indoor plumbing, right? Indoor running water, central heat. Our homes are actually at least twice the size, on average, that homes were in the 1940s. And we're not in the middle of a worldwide war. And folks rank themselves at a 7.2 out of 10. We have a ton more stuff than we've ever had. But our happiness has not increased. In fact, it's actually decreased just a little bit. Um, back in the 1960s is when storage units started to get built all around America. It's not that there was never any storage units anywhere in America. There were some, but they were mostly little mom and pop things. It wasn't until they, uh, the 1960s when they started to become uh, more ubiquitous around the states. Uh, 1978, for whatever reason, they say is kind of the start of when they really began to grow in popularity, and they have actually continued to grow uh, up until this past year when there was 2.3 billion square feet of space in storage units. That's the size of Manhattan, <laughs> just for storing our extra crap. By 1990, Americans had, on average, double the amount of possessions that they had in 1965. So from 1965 to 1990, Americans on average doubled the amount of possessions. Just think about whatever you had in your house, now double it. They say that we've probably doubled again since that time to today. Did you know that in 2005, the average U.S. consumer bought a new piece of clothing every five and a half days. That's 66 pieces of clothing. T-shirts, shoes, scarves, headbands, shorts. At first I was like, that's insane. Somebody out there must be like buying crazy stuff all the time. Then I started thinking about like my last year. And I started to get a little bit embarrassed at how much I might be right in the middle of that average. Uh, author Greg Easterbrook says this, adjusting for population growth, he says, 10 times as many people in Western nations today suffer from unipolar depression. That is the unremitting bad feelings without a specific cause for them. He said, 10 times more people today suffer from this 
unipolar depression than did 50 years ago. And he says, Americans and Europeans have more of everything except happiness. More of everything except happiness. So what do we do? I personally think we need to go back to outhouses. Like if we could just, I'm kidding, that's disgusting. That'd be like the worst thing ever, all right? I'm not saying that we ought to get rid of like our indoor plumbing or our indoor electricity or central heat or anything like that. All right, that's not the issue. Uh, John Mark Comer actually says that there are two things that are actually the issue. He says it's not stuff, it's the fact that, number one, we put no limit on stuff that we have due to our insatiable human desire for more. And secondly, we think we need all sorts of things to be happy when in actuality we need very few. When in actuality we need very few. Now, look, this is not a new concept. It's not a new idea. This is something that uh, Jesus taught on himself in multiple different places. And what I'd like to do this morning is we're going to look at four passages that speak into this issue of stuff, money, possessions, what Jesus had to say about it. We're not going to spend a ton of time in there, but I want to explain to you why what Jesus says makes such a big deal for us today and why it is in our best interest to adopt Jesus' lifestyle so that we can begin to experience the life Jesus offers. Look with me in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 15. We're going to look at a passage in Luke, a passage in Acts, a passage in Matthew, and we'll come back to this Luke 12. Again, Luke 12, 15, Jesus simply says, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Acts chapter 20, verse 35, Luke, who's the writer of the book of Acts, this history of kind of the church, he actually quotes Jesus where Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It is more blessed to give than to receive, or it's better to give than it is to receive. I'm a gifts guy. I will admit, I struggle with this one. At least I did for a really long time. I was always better. I liked giving gifts, but I definitely liked receiving them a little bit more. Over the last number of years, I have begun to learn and realize how true this actually is. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus also said, you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. Going back to Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 22, Jesus said, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. We're like, whoa, 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 Jesus. Yo, yo, you don't live in 2021, bro. We have to worry about this stuff. Like it's, all, like it's in our face all the time. I got to be thinking about this. What do you mean don't worry about it? We're always worried about it. Jesus, have you seen Instagram? I got to be up on the latest. I got to look good. Jesus, I'm single. I got to make sure that everything's on point. Verse 33 and verse 34, Jesus continues in Luke chapter 12. A huge chunk of this passage is all about what we deal, how we deal with money and possessions. And Jesus says, sell your possessions. Give them to the poor. Verse 34, he says, where your treasure is, 
there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be, your attention, your mind, your focus. Now, in the four passages that we just looked at, uh, Jesus gives us four moral laws. Okay? Now, when you hear the word laws, everybody's like, eh, I don't like laws. I'm, I'm a nonconformist. That's how I feel a lot of times, at least. Maybe you're different than me. But these are moral laws. These are not arbitrary laws. These are more like scientific laws. Arbitrary laws? Arbitrary laws are like the speed limit. Okay? Or taxes. Who's got to pay how much? Like, that's an arbitrary law. Who gets to live in the United States? Those are arbitrary laws. All right, you, anybody know uh, what the speed limit is out on Cascade Road right here? <laughs> I didn't say what you drive. I said, what's the speed limit? 55, okay? 55 miles an hour. That's an arbitrary law. Who decided that 55 miles an hour is the correct speed that you shouldn't surpass? I feel very confident in my ability to drive 65 miles an hour on Cascade Road and be safe. But I also feel very confident that my daughter should never drive above 50 miles an hour on Cascade Road. And I'm even more confident that my mom probably shouldn't drive faster than a golf cart can go. Because if you've ever been with her, you do, I'm just kidding, mom. I'm kidding. She's probably listening. That's an arbitrary law, okay? Somebody just decided, well, I think this is the most speed or miles per hour somebody should go. What Jesus gives us in those four passages are what theologians call moral laws. A moral law is like a scientific law. It's simply describing the way that the world actually works. You can choose to disobey the law of gravity, <laughs> right? You can be like, ah, that ain't really for me. Like, that's great for those scientists, all right? But I don't believe in the law of gravity. Well, you can, you can disobey it, but you will pay the price, right? It's simply how the world works. When Jesus gives us these moral laws, he's not getting on our case about it. He's just saying, look, this is the way that the world works. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Life doesn't consist in an abundance of possessions. You can't serve both God and money. Where your treasures, there your heart will be also. These are moral laws. Jesus is describing to us how the universe works. And if we decide we don't want to listen to what God says, not only does it affect our relationship with God, but it also affects our relationship with the life that we live. It's like going against the grain. And when you go against the grain, you wind up with splinters. Many of Jesus' teaching on money and stuff were just about how the world actually works. When he says life doesn't consist in abundance of possessions, he doesn't say life should not consist in abundance of possessions. He just says life does not consist in having a whole lot of crap. When he says it's more blessed to give than to receive, he's not saying usually, <laughs> usually it's best. No, no, he's just saying, look, this is the way it is. When he says you can't serve both God and money, it's not a should not. It's not a, hey, you shouldn't try to serve both God. It's you can't. You got to pick one or the other. Same thing with where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not like, well, usually, no. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be as well. So, confession time. We're in this series on learning how to slow down and adopt the lifestyle of Jesus to experience the life that Jesus calls us into. Okay? Jesus talked about what his yoke is like when we connect up with him. 
how he came to give us life and life to the full. And that kind of life shows itself with peace, joy, love. And as we talk about these four practices, two weeks ago, Aaron shared with us about the practice of silence and solitude. Uh, Last week, Adam shared with us the practice of Sabbath. I feel like this is probably the one, today's practice, that I have the most work to do. Now, I'm not great at Sabbath, but I understand the idea of it, and I like it, and I want to be better at it, and so we're, we're actually trying as well, just like Adam shared, what their family's doing, our family's trying to do something similar. I was actually talking with uh, uh, a couple just this past week, and they were saying how difficult it was for them to kind of rethink about the idea of Sabbath as being a good thing, because they, they grew up in a pretty conservative Christian reform household, where Sundays were Sabbath, and that just meant that you had to go to church and then come home and be bored. And you couldn't do anything. He's like, I couldn't even play basketball on a Sunday. Like, you come home, you might be able to read, all right? But it's church and then boredom. And then after that, more boredom. Then maybe you can take a nap and then you got to go back to church. And then hopefully the day is finally over, okay? That is not what Sabbath is intended. Sabbath is supposed to be a day that we set aside to worship and delight in the things that God's given us, the things that bring us life and enjoyment. And when we understand that about Sabbath, like, oh, who wouldn't want that? It's like a gift that God gives us. Like, we should indulge. Like, that's what Sabbath is supposed to be, this wonderful thing. But this one, what we're looking at today is the idea of how Jesus lived his life simply, the concept of simplicity. I struggle with this one. I like stuff. I've always liked stuff. I don't know if it's because I grew up with not a lot of money and I had a lot of brothers and sisters. Like we didn't get, if it wasn't your birthday or Christmas, you were not getting a gift, okay? And so maybe it's part of that. Maybe it's part of my personality, but I just like stuff. But I have started to realize that what Jesus has taught, life does, is not found in an abundance of possessions, how true that is. Uh, for years, years and years. I had friends that had boats, and I was like, I don't ever want a boat. That sounds like the dumbest thing ever, all right? There's like a big hole in the ocean that you just throw money in, okay? They say the best two days of boat ownership is the day you buy it and the day you sell it. (laughs) I'm like, I'm never going to get a boat. And then four years ago, I started thinking, man, maybe a boat would be fun. So what did I do? Bought a boat, all right? Bought a boat, said I would never have a boat. Bought a boat, it was a little pontoon. It was pretty cheap. I loved it. It was a great boat. Get my family out on it. Didn't go very fast. I was kind of complaining. Dad, it doesn't go very fast, Dad. Hey, Dad, wouldn't it be nice to have a boat that you could go tubing on? All Our friends that have boats, they all have like better boats, Dad. <laughs> Nicer boats, Dad. Boats that go faster, Dad. And Dad started thinking, that would be kind of fun, wouldn't it? This is nice, but if I had a boat that could go tubing and water skiing, like that would be so. I finally convinced myself that that's what I needed to do. So I sold my pontoon, and I found a deck boat. It's supposed to be kind of like a pontoon and kind of like a speedboat. You can go tubing and chill out on it. I was like, this is going to be the bomb. And I found a guy that had one that was in pretty decent shape, used, but decent shape still, down in Tennessee. I talked to the guy. He sounded great explained to me why he was selling the boat. It was late fall. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to drive down. I'm going to buy this boat. So I drove down there and I handed him the cash. 
uh, didn't even start the thing up and decided I was going to head home. Some of y'all are judging me right now. You don't know enough about boats to be judging me, okay? And I got home, and I was like, you know what? I need to give this thing a little test drive. So I was about to put in the water and went to start it up, and nothing. And realized that uh, the guy had sold me a boat knowing that it, the engine was destroyed. And this wasn't something you could fix. This needed a complete engine replacement. And uh, I will tell you, I lost hours trying to work on that thing. I lost weeks and weeks of worry. I had nights where I couldn't sleep because I was so upset about it. Had multiple conversations with the guy, kept saying he was going to do stuff, never did. I eventually had to just forgive him. Not for his sake, for my sake, because I was so frustrated, angry, upset, anxious, Months to actually get the boat fixed from a marina. Thousands of dollars. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. That was a hard lesson to have to learn that moral law. I wasted so much time, so much energy. I, I, I swear I lost a few months of my life in the worry that happened as a result of that. This is something I'm still learning, but it is something that I so want to dive into. So friends, what are we supposed to do? Here's what I'd like to do in the couple minutes that we have left. I'd like to share with you uh, a definition of simplicity. Then I'd like to tell you real briefly what it's not, and then I'm going to give you five principles of how we can engage. If you're a note taker, the five principles, that's going to be like the gold, okay? So let me start with a definition of simplicity. It is the intentional promotion of the things we most value and the removal of everything that distracts us from them. The intentional promotion, I love this, of the things we most value and the removal of everything that distracts us from them. That's from a guy named Joshua Becker. He's a, a, a follower of Jesus um, that has begun to implement uh, minimalist or simplistic living, simple living uh, in his life. Uh, he writes a lot about it. Great stuff. So let me talk about real quickly uh, what it isn't, okay? A lot of times people hear minimalism and they think, oh, that's like a design style, right? <laughs> that's what museums look like. I need to have a house that's all white and there's like one piece of furniture in it and I need to only dress in black. Like that's, it's a design. That's not what minimalism or minimalist living is actually about. You can still love mid-mod or boho or Spanish country. You can love like flashy clothes that are bright or whatever. It doesn't, that, like, it's not about a style. It's about something else. Secondly, it's not about organizing all your stuff, okay? A lot of times people hear it's like, oh, yeah, I need to get, like, one of those label makers and a whole bunch of bins, and then I'll label everything, and then I'll, like, know where it's at, and it'll be great. Just get everything together. No, no, no. If you have to organize stuff into bins, you probably have too much stuff, okay? Number three, it's not poverty. It's not poverty. Then other people start thinking like, oh, you got to like be one of those people that walk around in like brown clothes, your hair's never done, and like you can't, like you're always sad about life because you just don't have anything. And no, that's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about poverty either. It's actually the opposite of that. The goal is freedom to enjoy the things that you love. So what does this practice actually look a little bit like? Uh, John Mark Comer gives this quote. I love it. Listen to what he says. The goal isn't just to declutter your closet or garage, but to declutter your life. 
to clear away the myriad of distraction that ratchet up our anxiety, feed us an endless stream of mind-numbing drivel, and anesthetize us to what really matters. So if you're saying like, all right, what am I supposed to pare down? Uh, let me tell you a couple of things. The minimalists say this. You should pare down anything that does not add value to my life. All right? Our favorite um, lady who does this on TV, anything that does not spark joy. Marie Kondo, come on. That lady's awesome. Joshua Becker says, too much stuff in too small a space. Anything that we no longer use or love, anything that leads to a feeling of disorganization. So let me give you five principles, okay? Five principles. Now, these are not just self-help things. Okay, I want you to understand that. These principles are derived from what Jesus has taught us, how we're supposed to live our lives so that we can enjoy the life that he created for us. Jesus modeled simplicity for us, and these are five ways we can begin to do it. Number one, before you buy anything, ask yourself, what is the true cost of this item? What's the true cost of this item? You're like, yo, I've been really thinking about getting a motorcycle. Sweet. Sounds fun. Sounds romantic. Sounds awesome. Wind in my hair, the open road. Yeah, but you got to not only think about what the actual motorcycle is going to cost, but what about the cost of the insurance and the gas and the upkeep and where are you going to store it in the wintertime? And then you got to start asking yourself some of the other questions like, it's not just money, it's also time. When are you going to find time? What are you going to take time away from to go get on that motorcycle and go let the hair blow in the wind and all that stuff, all right? What is the true cost of this item? Number two, never impulse buy. I never do that. But when you do, uh, opt for fewer, better things. The goal isn't just to be like, what's the least amount of money I can spend on my one outfit, okay? All right, that might be, <laughs> maybe that's not a terrible goal. Uh, but the point isn't to just simply have like super basic stuff. You can if you want, but you can have something really, really nice. Buy less, but buy better. Buy something that's going to actually last that actually was made in a sustainable way that's good for the earth and good for people in the earth. Way too often we buy stuff because it's what? On clearance, right? You're like, oh, well, it's so cheap. I should get this, right? Not to mention you've already got like four or five other things almost exactly like it. Not to mention that it's cheap because it means that somebody in another country made it for super low wages, if not even slave labor. We ought to care about where our stuff comes from. So, Never impulse buy, but when you do, opt for fewer, better things. Number three, when you can, share. This is the borrow, don't buy principle, okay? I live in a neighborhood that there's a, whole, uh, a few folks around me that have stuff I need, all right? I really wanted to have my own big leaf blower, all right? I get lots of leaves. I hate raking them, all right? I wanted to buy one, but you know what? My neighbor's got one, and he lets me borrow it whenever I want. I, I bring the thing back full of gas, and he's happy, I'm happy, I don't need to own it, I can borrow. Not only that, but we want to be people who cultivate the habit of giving things away. It's better to give than to receive. Begin to cultivate that habit in your life. You got two of something, give one away. Number four, cultivate a deep appreciation for simple pleasures. Some of the best things to enjoy are free parks, free beaches, a good talk with a friend, enjoying a sunset, a delicious cup of coffee that you just sit and sip and enjoy with lots of cream and sugar. I, uh, I don't own Meyer Gardens. 
but I pretend I do. All right? It ain't free. We, we buy a, a, a yearly pass, but we go there all the stinking time. I love art. I love gardens. The sculpture park, it's like stinking world-class, legit, world-class. The gardens, especially the Japanese garden, ah, if you've not been, shame on you, okay? The city owns it. I don't own it, but I pretend it's mine. Why? Because I can learn to enjoy things. I don't have to own something to enjoy it. Number five, recognize advertising for what it is, propaganda, and then call out the lie. You don't need the new iPhone. In the last service, Jordan yelled out, Ah! <laughs> no, look, we all find ourselves with that, right? We all find ourselves like, oh, but I want that. Or this isn't even like used up yet, but I need the next one. The next, And we find ourselves falling into this trap all the time. And advertising is the reason that we fall into that trap. If you didn't even know that there was an iPhone 13, you'd probably still be thrilled with your iPhone 3GS. Okay? You're probably like, this thing's amazing. You know what it can do? And then someone's like, have you seen the iPhone 13? Like, I have to have it. This is what advertising, my, my, my daughter was just talking about this. There was a, uh, literally a, a mortgage company trying to sell mortgages. And she's like, how come the couple in the thing is always laughing and smiling? They're doing stupid things and they're laughing about it. Why? And I was like, because they want you to think you get a new mortgage, you're gonna be happy, right? That's what advertising does. St. Francis of Assisi, uh, it was said this of him. He led a cheerful, happy revolt against the spirit of materialism. Isn't that a great thing to be said? A cheerful Happy revolt. So, where can you start? Start with your closet. I did this just this past week. I went into my closet and I realized that I have a crap ton of shirts that I'm still keeping around because two reasons. One, I got them really cheap. Right? And two... One day they're going to fit me again. <laughs> I took about two-thirds of my closet out to either give to my kids or to give away. I'm trying to pare down. So if you're like, what do I do? I get these principles. I buy them. I know that the life of Jesus is a life of simplicity, not a life that lacks joy or purpose or enjoyment, all right? But the life of Jesus is a life of simplicity because that's where we actually can enjoy things. What if you actually pare down your closet to seven outfits? You have a Monday outfit, a Tuesday outfit, a Wednesday outfit. And every Monday you wake up, you don't even have to think about what you're going to wear. You already know. It's your Monday shirt. What if you could get it down to like two pairs of pants and like three shirts? You probably haven't noticed, but for the past month, um, I've been trying to simplify uh, my wardrobe a little bit. So I have basically three sweatshirts that I wear. I got a green one like this, this blue one, that I did my own little ombre with some bleach. You like that? Come on, man. I was like, oh, good I, did, I did that. And I got a black and gray one. And I've been purposely trying to wear those almost every day. And you know what? It's so freeing. I know how much crap I have. And I know how it often takes my heart 
my mind, my thoughts, and moves it towards worrying about all the stuff I got to put away every fall or things I got to do or what am I going to wear today? And as I get to learn to trust that what Jesus taught is actually true, I begin to recognize that I find real life there. So I want to close just with this one final quote from John Mark Comer. He says, simplicity isn't the answer to the hurry of our modern world. There's no silver bullet, but it is an answer, even an easy one. Just get rid of the crap you don't need or love. So friends, as we begin to learn to live into this space, we will begin to realize that what Jesus says, what the word says is actually true. And we'll start to experience more hope and peace and joy and love in our lives. And other people around us will begin to recognize that as well. And they'll want to know what that's about. If you want to experience the life of Jesus, this full, abundant life that he promises to anybody who will give their lives to him, we also must adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. Father, let us be a people who don't just talk about it, but that are actually being about it. God, you know that this one is probably the, I got the most work to do on this particular practice. So God, let me just practice it day by day, taking those steps, those little steps to declutter more of my shoes and more of my clothes, more of my stuff, so that I can just learn to enjoy the things that you've given me, not always worrying about how to keep them up, take care of them. God, let us be a people who does that, that lives into this simple lifestyle that you modeled for us, Jesus. God, we know that life is not found in an abundance of possessions. We know that where our treasure is there, our heart will be also. God, let us put our treasure in you that we might be able to share you with others. We love you, Jesus. Thanks for loving us. Thanks for being so gracious to us. You keep giving us new chances and new tries. You don't come down on us. You don't drive us to shame. You just continually whisper in our ear, come follow me. More grace. Link up with my yoke. Oh, Jesus, you're so good. Thank you. We love you. Thanks for loving us. Thanks for your death and your resurrection. Father, thanks for giving us Jesus in this Christmas season as we remember to eagerly await for his arrival. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.